Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... All cases deserve coverage, deserve acknowledgement and space to honor those who were the victims of monsters. But some are difficult to cover in the short format of our show. On December 6th, 1991, four young girls lost their lives in a strange, incredibly involved case that involves research that goes beyond this podcast. But four girls who still deserve to have their stories told. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. In the 1990s, Austin, Texas, which is now considered a major metropolitan area boasting a population of around 1 million residents, was considered a nice, quiet area where you could raise a family without any worry. A progressive place where violent crime was virtually non-existent, and parents could feel good about allowing their children to walk the streets without any adult supervision. It was a different time, and while Austin remains a wonderful place to raise a family, nothing quite compares to the independence children were allowed in the years far gone. On December 6, 1991, Austin Police Sergeant John Jones Jr. reported for duty well aware that, despite the fact that he was the only homicide detective on duty, he would likely have a quiet and uneventful evening. Much to the chagrin of a local CBS affiliate team who had been following Texas homicide detectives to give viewers an idea of what it was like for police working in larger cities. 
As Sergeant Jones and the production team settled in for what they assumed was a quiet evening of paperwork, the department got a call over the radio just before midnight that would change not only the officer's life, but the lives of many living in the Austin area. An Austin Police Department officer called into dispatch that night informing them that a fire had broken out at a local frozen yogurt shop on a sleepy street in the northwestern part of the city. Fire crews soon showed up to try and extinguish the blaze, and when the smoke finally cleared and they made their cursory inspection of the scene, the firefighters made a shocking discovery. The bodies of four teenage girls. It didn't take long for police to identify the bodies, and with their identity came the following story. As most of the teens in Austin prepared for the upcoming winter break, 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison, after stopping at the home of her high school boyfriend, picked up her work clothes at around 7 p.m. and made her way to the yogurt shop where she worked. Along for the ride was her 15-year-old sister, Sarah, And after picking up Sarah's 13-year-old best friend, Amy Errors, and dropping the girls off at a nearby mall, Jennifer clocked into work. In a time where wandering the mall was completely commonplace, and with Sarah working only a half a mile away, no one thought anything of the two young teens hanging out at the mall unsupervised. While Sarah and Amy walked around the crowded mall, which was complete with a movie theater and ice skating rink, Jennifer and her 17-year-old best friend, Eliza Thomas, worked the closing shift at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. People, of course, trickled in and out of the yogurt shop throughout the evening, with one woman arriving shortly after Jennifer clocked in and taking note of two teenage boys sitting in a booth near the front of the door and engrossed in the contents of a bag sitting in the center of their table. The only two customers in the shop at the time. At around 9 p.m., Jennifer Harbison took her short break and drove down the street to pick up Sarah and Amy from North Cross Mall. It was closing and she instructed the young girls to hang out near the yogurt shop until she could bring them home. After getting a pizza at a nearby shop, they came back to sit and wait for Jennifer to get off of work. At around 9.30 p.m., Eliza's mother dropped by the shop to check in on the girls, something the parents did regularly on the weekends stayed for a few minutes, got some frozen yogurt, and left knowing her daughter would get out of work very soon. There were no other customers in the store at the time. At some point between when Eliza's mother dropped by and around 10 p.m., a former military policeman dropped by with a few of his friends and took note of two separate young couples who sat chatting, as well as a lone young man who appeared a little, quote, fidgety when spoken to by the former policeman. He ordered a single can of soda and took it towards the very back of the store to drink in silence. When later asked, the former officer was unable to provide any more information about the young man, nor was he able to identify him in a photo lineup. All he remembered, besides his demeanor, was that he was wearing a green jacket that looked like it came from a military surplus store. Between 10 and 11 p.m., multiple witnesses came into I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, but the final sale for the evening came at 10.42 p.m. when a couple came out of a movie and grabbed a quick dessert before heading home. They would later claim that inside were a few men sitting at the table closest to the register wearing jackets that obscured their faces. Because nothing seemed out of the ordinary about their presence, the couple made no effort to get a better look at their fellow patrons. They left at about 10.47 p.m., just 13 minutes before the yogurt shop closed for the evening. 
While Jennifer and Eliza were the only employees working that night, many believed that Sarah and Amy came by to help them with their closing responsibilities so they could exit the building a little bit faster. As the clock started to inch towards midnight, the parents of all four girls wondered what could have been taking them so long. But without any real concern, just assumed they had stopped off at the Lanier High's off-campus site to take care of the animals that they were raising for the FFA. In a place like Austin in the 1990s, they felt that they had nothing really to worry about. It was around that time that Officer Troy Gay drove past the strip mall and saw I Can't Believe It's Yogurt going up in flames. His call was placed into dispatch at 11.47 p.m. When the bodies of each girl were investigated, police quickly realized that this wasn't a case of an accidental fire. Sarah Harbison's hands had been bound behind her back with a pair of underwear. She was gagged, raped, and shot execution style with a 22 caliber bullet. Jennifer was not bound, but her hands were behind her back, and Eliza was gagged with her hands tied behind her back, both shot in the back of the head with the same gun that killed Sarah. All three were severely charred. Amy Ayer's body was found separate from that of her friends. And unlike the other girls, her body received second and very early third degree burns, not completely charred like the others. She was found with a sock-like cloth around her neck and was shot with the same caliber weapon, but with her, the bullet missed her brain. Therefore, a second shot was dealt and exited through her lateral cheek and jawline. Examination of the scene would lead to theories that the killer, or killers, stacked all four bodies on top of one another. But Amy, who did not die instantly like the others, attempted to pull herself off of her friends and crawl to a different part of the store. Sarah and Eliza's bodies were stacked one on top of the other while Jennifer's body lay right next to them, possibly pushed to the side when Amy attempted her escape. Autopsies would also show high levels of BTU output, suggesting that an accelerant was used to start and intensify the fire. The girls were likely already dead before the flames consumed them. It seemed that over the course of just minutes, the girls went from planning their sleepover to fighting for their lives. As police started to work the crime scene, they noticed that the back door of the yogurt shop had been left unlocked which is likely how the killers made their exit since the front door had already been secured for the evening. About $540 had been stolen from the store, and a look at the system determined that the last transaction took place at 11.03 p.m., three minutes after the store was closed and 13 minutes after the doors had already been locked. The transaction was listed as no sale and was likely one of the girls opening the drawers so the culprits could steal their money. An arson investigator was brought into the scene and determined that the fire itself started at approximately 11.42 p.m., about five minutes before the call was made to police dispatch and 39 minutes after the no-sale was registered. 39 minutes of complete terror for four teenage girls who had an entire life ahead of them. Unfortunately, because the scene was treated as simply a fire rather than a murder, the firefighters unintentionally washed away almost every speck of physical evidence left behind at the scene, meaning the killer's plans to eliminate any trace of themselves in the shop came to fruition. In the days after the murders, Bryce Foods, the company that owned I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, offered a $25,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest. 
Despite this, the case of the Austin yogurt shop murders remains officially unsolved, a crime that was just as high profile as it was bungled. Over the course of the investigation, over 50 people, including serial killer Kenneth Allen McDuff, who was executed in 1998, confessed to the Austin yogurt shop murders. On August 6, 1999, police in Texas and West Virginia arrested four suspects in connection to the murder. They were 24-year-old Robert Burns Springsteen Jr., 25-year-old Michael James Scott, 24-year-old Maurice Pierce, and 23-year-old Forrest Wellburn. Robert and Michael had, during their police questioning, confessed to taking part in the murder of Jennifer, Sarah, Amy, and Eliza, showed a deep knowledge for the crime, and implicated more recent Forrest in the process. Their arrest came as a very welcome surprise to the girls' families, who thought, after eight years of the unknown, the girls were finally about to receive the justice that they so deserved. However, due to the complete lack of evidence against them, the case against Maurice and Forrest was eventually dropped. This left just Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott, who were tried almost solely on the statements that they made to the police. Robert would eventually be sentenced to death while Michael received life imprisonment. But the case started to quickly fall apart. The investigation as a whole was complicated by internal matters at the Austin Police Department, with Detective Hector Polanco being fired for, allegedly, coercing confessions. Then a relationship between Robert's father and the Austin Police data processing employee was revealed, prompting her transfer, and Detective Polanco was reinstated after suing the city for discrimination based on his race. He would eventually be promoted and retire with a full pension. While all of this was going on in 2006 and 2007, the courts decided to overturn the guilty verdicts for both Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott after the Supreme Court ruled in a separate case that the two men's statements against one another, which was basically what the prosecution's whole case was based off of, could not be used against the other as it violated their constitutional right to confront their accusers. With that case completely destroyed, Travis County had to decide if they were going to retry the men they believed were responsible. That's around the time that the prosecutors learned about a new science that could extract male-only DNA from a forensic sample. Working with what very little evidence was left on the girls' bodies, and with this more advanced technology, police were able to extract the DNA sample in hopes of narrowing the field of suspects to a family of men. They did so in March of 2008, and... Much to their disappointment, the samples did not match Maurice Pierce, Forrest Wellburn, Michael Scott, or Robert Springfield. The case was completely back at square one, and all of the charges were dropped and Michael and Robert walked out of prison free men in 2009. With only a small sample of DNA, which they weren't even certain belonged to the killers, police went back to try and solve the increasingly cold case. The DNA was tested against most of the customers present the night of the murder, many of the classmates at the girls' schools, and the firefighters who unintentionally contaminated the scene. No one was a match, and no new charges have ever been filed in the case of the yogurt shop murders. As of 2016, the Austin Police Department's cold case unit continues to pursue the identity of the unknown male. Then, in the spring of 2017, a new lead offered hope to the families of the young victims. 
According to Travis County Prosecutor Efrain De La Fuente, in a call to Amy's father, that isolated DNA sample was put into a searchable database and, though there was no name attached, a match was made to a possible relative of his daughter's killer. But the good news came with a caveat. According to the database's disclaimer, it does not function as a law enforcement database and, quote, cannot be used to identify a particular individual whose sample is in the database. All donors are anonymous and samples cannot be traced back to a specific individuals, meaning the company was not legally obligated to give out the name of the match. In March of 2017, Efrain sent a grand jury subpoena to the University of Central Florida to try and obtain the name from their match. And days later, learned that the sample was submitted by a forensic analyst at the FBI. At first, this seemed like the perfect piece of news, and Efrain assumed the FBI would bend over backwards to try and solve this seemingly unsolvable case. However, these hopes were soon completely dashed when the FBI said they had no intention of disclosing the information that they were seeking, citing a 1994 federal law that created a national forensic database that required officials to protect the identity of the anonymous donors whose DNA was submitted to the Florida database for population research. They further argued that, unlike a traditional DNA sample, this isolated one could match with thousands of men who could all have the same male profile as the one found at the scene of the Austin murder, saying it would be impossible to use their information to identify a single individual. Essentially, a needle in a haystack. While they continued to fight for the information, the FBI remained steadfast in their decision. This is the last update on the Austin Yogurt Shop murders, and as it stands, it seems unlikely the case will ever be solved leaving the families with more than three decades of complete heartbreak. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on December 7th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. <laughs>